that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. On the program, we'll be hearing from Maloon Kothari. He is a former UN Special Rapporteur on the right to adequate housing and an interesting and important discussion from a global expert on housing and the challenges facing not only developing countries, um, but certainly Canadian cities as well. You're tuned into the city now. We're dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us.
And welcome to the program. This is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. Thanks so much for tuning in. Maloon Kothari is the former UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Adequate Housing, and he spoke at SFU Woodward's on July 9th, 2012. We'll be hearing his full talk titled The Right to Adequate Housing, From Practice to Policy to Practice. I want to thank SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement for permission to broadcast this recorded talk. And uh, first, we're going to hear UBC law professor Margot Young introduce Maloon Kothari, follow, and that will be followed uh, with uh, by uh, Mr. Kothari's talk. And this is The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Thanks so much for tuning in. And again, the right to adequate housing. I'm really pleased to be part of tonight's event, and I want to begin by acknowledging that our presence is on the traditional and unceded territories of the Coast Salish people, and to, to uh, thank them. In 2007, Maloon Kathari, who was then the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Adequate Housing, visited Canada for the United Nations Commission on Human Rights. His visit focused on four specific areas of keen relevance to Canada, homelessness, women's housing rights, housing in Aboriginal peoples, and the possible impact of the then impending 2010 Vancouver Olympics on housing in Vancouver. In the resulting report presented a couple of years later to the United Nations Human Rights Council, Mr. Kathari noted a couple of contextual features, or several contextual features, of housing issues in Canada that remain relevant today. First of all, the report notes that Canadian domestic law at either the constitutional or legislative level does not include explicit recognition of the right to adequate housing as either an enforceable right or a policy commitment. While Canada has signed on to these rights at the international level, such commitments are not enforceable domestically, nor has the Canadian government at any of the levels of Canadian government been particularly uh, successful in voluntary and adequate observance of these international obligations. The report also went on to note the complex system of governance, of shared governance between federal, provincial and municipal governments that bears on housing matters. This is true particularly for our Indigenous peoples but also for the immediate local issues of housing that face Vancouver. Canada, furthermore, is one of the few countries in the world without a national housing strategy, at either the federal level or at most provincial levels. The report was in some deeply concerned and critical of the housing situation in Canada. A shortage of social housing stock stood out. Distressing and growing numbers of the homeless were observed in all parts of our country, but severely, particularly in our own downtown east side. Women, especially Aboriginal women, suffered disproportionate poverty and lack of housing affordability and availability. Effective and full government responses to these issues were missing. The result of the 2007 visit and the ensuing report was a series of recommendations for improving the housing situation in Canada. These recommendations emphasize such things as legal recognition of the human right to housing in our legal system, uh, coordinated government housing policy, social housing programs, 
government coordination and cooperation between levels of government with respect to housing, and engagement with the unique needs of Aboriginal women and with women generally in Canada. Five years later brings us to today, and homelessness and housing issues remain significant and pressing issues. One in four Canadian households experience a housing adequacy and affordability crisis. Remaining federal commitments to social housing threaten to disappear in a few years. At the municipal level, the situation is no less dire. Vancouver is known as the least affordable city in the world. Property prices skyrocket, rental units are inadequate in number, and out of too many renters' economic ranges. We remain a city where housing availability is shaped by too few housing options and persistent growing unmet demand. Our governments still have yet to step up to these challenges. Yet it is well accepted that affordable, adequate, and accessible housing is a critical social determinant of vital aspects of individual flourishing, of health, of social inclusion, and participation. Housing is also a critical factor in a strong economy, and it's central to a just and equal society. So the challenge remains ours, sadly so, in a country, in a city so prosperous and marked by at least the formal cognizance of the imperative of human rights. We are fortunate to have been able to persuade Maloon to visit us again on this occasion. His wisdom and experience as an outsider who knows us well offer the valuable opportunity for us to engage in the kind of critical, substantive, and in sustained conversation that our aspirations to be a nation and a city that is marked by housing justice necessitate. And I want to end by just reminding you of a few of Maloon's accomplishments. He is an architect by training. He's been a guest professor at a number of universities around the world and is a leading voice at national and international levels on human rights, particularly social and economic rights. As I've already mentioned, he is the past Special Rapporteur on Adequate Housing, appointed in 2000 by the United Nations Commission on Human Rights. This was a position that required annual reports to the Commission and then the Human Rights Council on the status of housing rights throughout the world. He is currently coordinator of the South Asian Regional Program of the Habitat International Coalition's Housing and Land Rights Network, and he is a founding member of the International NGO Committee on Human Rights in Trade and Investment. We're fortunate tonight to have as the central feature of the events that lie before us a presentation by Maloon. This will be followed by um, a short uh, series of comments by Michael Shapcott, who's going to zoom in via Skype to us from Toronto. And Michael is the director of the Wellesley Institute, and I'll provide a bit more information about him before he appears on the large screen. After that, there'll be a short conversation between Maloon, Michael, and myself, and we'll follow that by an opportunity for questions from the audience and hoping that we'll wrap this event up at about nine o'clock. So all that's left me then is simply uh, to ask you to join me in welcoming Maloon Kathari back to Vancouver, to this stage, and to join again in conversation with us. Thank you.
thanks very much, Margot, and good evening, everyone. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to be back. Um, and uh, I got a bit emotional when you were introducing me. It's, I, I almost feel like it's a second home. I've been here so often recently. Uh, but it's, it's good to be back. Um, it's very disturbing to see that not much has changed on, on the housing front, but we have to keep on uh, with our work. Um, uh, before I begin, let me also acknowledge the, that we are here uh, in the traditional territories of Slalavut uh, Savashse. Apologies for not pronouncing it properly. Um, all of you are probably wondering that someone who's been around for so long and been to so many places uh, couldn't think of a more creative title to this evening's lecture. Uh, but let, let me try to explain that. Um, the, what I'm going to try to do um, over the next half an hour, 40 minutes, is uh, trace for you the, the history of the right to adequate housing, how it has developed, how it was actually civil society movements and campaigns that articulated what the right uh, meant, and then that was taken up by different bodies in the United Nations, and then that um, articulation uh, has now is now you know part of uh, policy and law in different countries in the world, uh, and and one of the reasons why uh, what comes from the United Nations has has been my experience resonates very well with civil society groups and campaigns is because the the language the ideas have actually come from the grassroots and I think that's very very important uh, for us to acknowledge. Uh, so the right to housing. Um, History actually begins um, in 1948 with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, which acknowledged housing, um, right to housing as part of a right to an adequate standard of living. And this was followed um, subsequently by uh, the recognition of the right in the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights in '66 in the Convention on Rights of the Child, the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, and most recently, the Convention on the Rights uh, of, of Disabled uh, Peoples. Um, and this right uh, has, through the years, uh, been developed by different bodies uh, that monitor the implementation of these instruments that I'm mentioning. During the 70s and 80s, um, there was also work done on the right to housing uh, through uh, national courts. Um, in particular, I'd like to mention the Indian Supreme Court, which in a series of judgments in the 70s and 80s uh, said that the right to life uh, includes the right to housing. Uh, they made a link between uh, the struggle for a place to live and, uh, and the right to life. And during the same time, there were international um, NGOs. Uh, there was an effort being made here in Canada, actually, which preceded uh, the first uh, global conference on human settlements, Habitat One, in 76, which then led to the formation of an international uh, coalition, Habitat International Council, at that time. And then there was uh, very active work done, uh, again, in the uh, 70s and 80s, by national campaigns around the world. Um, there was, I'll give you one example, uh, the National Campaign on Housing Rights in India, which did an extensive survey of what housing meant in the country uh, at the vernacular, at the local level. And, and you know, the understanding was that for most people, housing is much more 
than four walls and a roof. It's actually a place to live, a place to belong. And that articulation was then, um, you know, that, that, that was sent up to the, um, the UN Committee on Economic and Social and Cultural Rights, which drafted something called a general comment, which was a legal interpretation of the right to housing in, in the covenant. And in the general comment, um, the committee uh, acknowledged that, um, that uh, the right to adequate housing should not be interpreted narrowly as a right to basic shelter or a roof over one's head, but rather, and I quote, as a right to live somewhere in security, peace, and dignity. And then the comment clarified that the right to housing is integrally linked to other human rights and to the inherent dignity of the human person. Uh, the, com the comment went on to, to uh, elaborate on seven um, what they called essential elements of the right to housing, without which, without any of those, uh, the right to housing is not, uh, would not be considered uh, to have been met or implemented. These were the legal security of tenure, um, availability of services, materials, facilities, and infrastructure, uh, the question of affordability, the question of habitability, that housing had to be habitable, accessibility, um, location, the question of where it's located in terms of access to, um, to employment opportunities, health, education, uh, and cultural adequacy. And uh, this, this was the first attempt at the global level to actually explain what just a few words mean in the covenants and the, uh, and the conventions. After the committee um, drafted this recommendation, um, there was more work done uh, at national levels, at global levels, which led actually to the, um, uh, the recognition, uh, the very strong and detailed recognition of the right to adequate housing in the Habitat Agenda, which is the uh, document that came out of the second global, uh, the second World Conference on Human Settlements in 1996 in Istanbul. Um, and then uh, during that time, uh, increasingly, we saw the recognition uh, in, con in national constitutions. Uh, the South African Constitution in 1996 uh, recognized housing as a fundamental right, a justiciable right. And uh, the, the article that recognizes that says that everyone has the right to have access to adequate housing, and the state must take reasonable legislative and other measures to achieve this right. And third, no one may be evicted from their home or have their home demolished without an order of court made after considering all the relevant circumstances, and no legislation may permit arbitrary evictions. Um, I know many of you wish you had this kind of a recognition in your own charter, uh, but it's interesting that there are countries in the south that have increasingly recognized that. Most recently, the um, Kenyan constitution has a similar provision. Uh, just now, the finalization of the constitution in Nepal has a similar uh, provision uh, which recognizes uh, housing not as a sort of, we call it a directive principle or something to aspire to, but as a fundamental human right uh, equal to all other human rights. So in the year 2000, when uh, the, uh, the Commission on Human Rights at that time decided to appoint uh, a special rapporteur on housing, um, one of the driving forces was um, the dire situation in the world. At that time, the statistics were horrifying. Uh, 100 million people homeless in the world, 
20 to 40 million in urban areas uh, and 1.6 billion people in ad considered inadequately housed by the UN. Um, that plus uh, many submissions from civil society organizations around the world convinced the Commission, uh, the Commission on Human Rights and what is now called the Human Rights Council is the uh, is the highest uh, intergovernmental policy making body on human rights in the UN. Uh, so that, that convinced uh, the Commission to appoint uh, for the first time a special rapporteur on adequate housing to understand the scale of the problem and to make uh, recommendations. Uh, so I was appointed in, in the year uh, 2000. And when I began my work, uh, just based on uh, what had happened in the preceding 10 and 15 years, uh, and I had been part of uh, a lot of that, um, I, I re I reinterpreted uh, the work on the right to housing to actually go even beyond where the other human rights bodies uh, like the Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights had gone in their understanding of the right to housing. And what prompted me to do this was the firm recognition uh, from my own experience that uh, the right to housing is not just as, as is articulated in the covenant on economic, social, just the economic, social and cultural rights, but it has many, many dimensions of civil and political rights. So in the interest of what is called the indivisibility of rights, human rights, uh, it was clear that the right to housing cannot be separated from the right to security of the home, security of the person, freedom from inhuman and degrading treatment, uh, freedom of uh, movement, and so on. So taking into account uh, the work that had been done until that time um, and this recognition of the right to uh, adequate housing uh, as a as a sort of comprehensive and, and holistic right, I attempted right at the beginning of the mandate to just to put out a, a sort of definition of how we should understand the right to housing. And the definition said, and I'm quoting, the human right to adequate housing is the right of every woman, man, youth, and child to gain and sustain a secure place to live in peace and dignity. Um, so the idea was to capture the entire spectrum of what the right to housing means. And in doing that, uh, in the subsequent years, I uh, attempted to expand the elements that the Committee on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights had identified. And I included elements such as freedom from dispossession, damage, and uh, destruction, access to land, water, and natural resources, access to information, uh, participation, uh, resettle, the right to resettle and restitution, uh, the right to privacy and security, and the right to access to remedies, and the right to education and empowerment. Uh, so, so you can see it was a, I mean, the, the initial attempt uh, in, the, in the initial years of the mandate was to uh, open up the issue to see what kind of responses uh, were received from uh, different sectors of society around the world. and. Um, I'm happy to report that during the course of the eight-year mandate, the, this interpretation of, uh, of the right to housing was, uh, was accepted uh, by almost by everyone. I don't think anyone really challenged that. There were some governments that said I was exceeding my mandate, uh, but I took that as a compliment and I just continued. Um,
And this is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. And uh, you're tuned into a conversation or a talk um, by Maloon Kothari, and he is a former the former UN rap- Special Rapporteur on the Right to Adequate Housing. And he spoke um, at SFU Woodward's on July 9th, 2012. And his talk is entitled The Right to Adequate Housing, From Practice to Policy to Practice. And we're going to continue um, hearing from Mr. Kothari um, in the second half of the hour. Thanks for tuning in. This is The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. So, uh during the course of those eight years, um, I also identified based on, I carried out 13 country missions. Uh, one of them was here in Canada and visited a number of other countries. And I, I, I produced eight um, annual reports which looked at different themes on the right to housing. And, and in that work, I identified um, a number of key obstacles to the realization of the right to adequate housing. And, and these are still with us. Um, First uh, was the issue of forced evictions. I found during the course of the work that that actually millions of people around the world uh, were being displaced from their homes for a range of reasons, but most disturbingly for uh, development purposes, for large-scale development projects, for large-scale infrastructure projects, city beautification, mega you know sports events, and uh, and shockingly, one of the statistics that we came up with was that. Actually, annually uh, in the world, more people were being displaced from their homes because of, you know, ostensibly development uh, than because of armed and ethnic conflict, which is quite a, you know, significant uh, finding. Um, And we found that most of the people who were being evicted, uh, there was no prior notice. Uh, There was very little consultation. Uh, there was inadequate or no resettlement. So essentially, it, it was the direct result of that was the growth of homelessness around the world, the growth of slums around the world, um, and that many of the evictions were increasingly taking place because of market-based uh, solutions, that it was actually speculation in rent, um, land and property, the lack of uh, rent protect, uh, rental protection legislation, uh, and, and generally the sort of prominence uh, or the preeminence given to markets by governments that was leading to people being displaced from their homes. The second uh, main obstacle, of course, uh, was homelessness itself, Uh, the growth of homelessness, the lack of governments to actually understand homelessness. I found very few governments that had an accurate assessment of how many people were homeless in their country, Uh, very few governments that had... um, uh, an appropriate definition of what is homelessness. Um, and uh, the third area, which actually I, I was able to study in great detail, uh, was the issue of women's rights to housing and land property and inheritance. Uh, the Commission on Human Rights asked me, alongside my, um, my regular work, to actually produce a separate study on women's rights to housing and land. And we did a four-year study uh, that resulted in three reports, and, and many regional consultations where we heard across the world voices of uh, uh, women at the grassroots. Uh, there was also a consultation held in the United States which included uh, women here from, from Canada. And some of the main findings of that four-year study were that 
The first was that I was quite shocked by the fact that there was a culture of silence when it came to, came to women's rights to housing and land. Uh, there was no participation of women in housing, planning, you know, other uh, related policies. Uh, there was never any consent of women um, to the de development policies. The second was that the ironic fact that while women's rights were being recognized more and more in law and policy, um, the, the, at the same time, the implementation uh, was not there. So essentially, there was a huge gap between recognition and implementation. The third was the growing incidence of violence against women. And this was across the world. In fact, there are very disturbing statistics in, of domestic violence uh, in Western Europe. Um, the, the whole issue of violence, uh, and violence also because of uh, women being evicted from their homes and, and facing insecure conditions, and a range of other reasons. The fourth finding was that there are, um, when it concerns women's rights to housing, land, property, and inheritance, uh, many countries that have conflicting legal regimes. So there are formal laws, there are religious laws, there are customary laws, and, and very little attempt being made to harmonize them consistent with uh, international human rights um, recognition and law. And, and the other finding was that women uh, suffered um, greatly because of uh, multiple forms of discrimination. Uh, when I was on mission in Australia, I'll give you an example. I, uh, uh, I met uh, a lady who was uh, indigenous, um, an elderly indigenous uh, leader who uh, was disabled. And when she explained to me the obstacles that she faces on a, on a daily basis, it became very clear that unless we have uh, data and information at this type of disaggregated level, it's very difficult to um, think about what types of policy interventions are necessary to help uh, people who have, women who are, suffer from multiple forms of, of discrimination. So uh, that brings me to the other uh, finding that um, was what surprised me when I was traveling around the world is, was generally a lack of assessment. I mentioned homelessness, but it was not only homelessness, a lack of assessment of the scale of the housing problem. Um, and uh, first of all, uh, I found that very few countries, as I mentioned, knew how many people were homeless, how many people were being displaced from their homes, how much land was being grabbed, um, and, and uh, there, there were no definitions to try to understand this. The second was that there was a lack of disaggregated data. So if you look at homeless people, how many women are homeless, how many Aboriginal people are homeless, how many children are homeless, uh, this type of disaggregated data was uh, and I think, and continues to actually not be, um, there isn't an accurate assessment of that. Nor was there an assessment of the type of changes happening in cities. I mean, across the world, we've had this uh, phenomenon of ghettoization, of segregation of communities, uh, the building of what I've been calling apartheid cities, towns, and villages. And that type of spatial data, which would show you, you know, which parts of the city, who lives, um, was very much missing, particularly tracked over time, um, what this, the statistics people call a time series data. Um, the third finding was that the, even um, where there was information, 
available, uh, there was a lack of analysis of that information. So very often in many countries I found that the statistical institutes or the census bureaus had information, but it was not used uh, for policy. So uh, there, there was, you know, there was, the, there was just not enough uh, understanding of the data that was available, and it was not, and even the data that was available was not used um, for policy formulation. The fourth finding, which I'll come back to, because I think this is very significant, um, was of course that one of the reasons there wasn't an accurate estimate is because a lot of energy went into uh, what I call the obsession uh, with growth and obsession with economic policies. So it was housing, and housing for the vulnerable was always seen as a something that you have to do after the fact, sort of a Band-Aid thing or something, or, or a, simply a welfare or a humanitarian measure. Um, so lack of assessment and scale of the problem. Um, and and this, uh, this issue of uh, um, growing speculation of, of land and property, no regulation or rules, uh, very few rules for real estate developers, a uh, great deal of corruption in the procurement of property. Uh, there's a growth of uh, land mafias and cartels across the world, which include uh, politicians, which include uh, elected officials, um, which include bureaucrats. And therefore, there's um, little interest in meeting the housing needs of the vulnerable and the poor. Uh, there was also growing um, privatization uh, as a result of global economic and other policies. Uh, privatization of civic services, uh, water, electricity, uh, so on. And, and I found that in one of the reports I did on, on the impact of global policies on housing, that privatization, uh, there were actually three primary lessons that can be drawn from experience with privatization. One is that private businesses put too much emphasis on profits and cost recovery. It's not surprising. Uh, and privatization often leads to rate increases. Um, second, that service to vulnerable groups of so parts of the cities, uh, towns where vulnerable people live is inadequate and of poor quality. And many of the poor in many cities of the world, uh, including in my own country, end up paying something 20 times more uh, than the rich for water. Um, and the third is that privatization reduces the accountability and local control. Uh, because multinational corporations which lead these privatization uh, schemes and projects are accountable to their shareholders and not to the citizens in the countries uh, where, they, uh, where they operate. Um, so the, this whole issue of, uh, you know, the obsession with the market, um, if countries followed the right to adequate housing approach, what they would do is regulate the market, they would control speculation, uh, actively intervene in the market, build social housing, uh, have strong rental legislation, regulate banks uh, and the whole uh, process of mortgages, address housing subsidies uh, for the poor and create housing options and the whole, whole concept of the housing continuum, which I will come back to. Instead, what we saw um, and we continue to see is increasing deregulation of the real estate market, the weakening of rent control legislations, uh, the demolition of public housing, um, reduction of subsidies, increased you know sort of places where there's there are 40-year mortgages, uh, and and essentially um, 
this obsession with home ownership, as if that's the only solution to the uh, to the housing problem. And and in a sense, when we look at the current uh, economic crisis around the world, um, it's very interesting to see that the solutions that are being pro uh, proposed come from that same uh, neoliberal mindset. So the banks that have got us into these problems are the ones that are being bailed out, and there's something um, terribly wrong with that. Um, so that's uh, sort of just a quick overview of uh, the work and the main findings um, of the mandate. Um, I, I'll just spend some few more minutes on, so what is to be done? Where is the hope um, faced with such a huge scale of problems? And within the, the mandate uh, from the, the Human Rights Commission and the Council, um, one of the tasks I was able to complete was to um, prepare uh, what are now called uh, the United Nations Basic Principles and Guidelines on Development-Based Displacement and Evictions. Uh, the idea was to prepare a set of guidelines, uh, sort of operational guidelines that would uh, indicate to municipalities and other levels of government uh, hu the human rights safeguards that had to be put into place before, during, and after uh, displacement, after evictions. So the guidelines attempt uh, to give a definition. They um, say that you know evictions can only happen in exceptional circumstances, that there has to be... Um, adequate information, consultation, consent. Uh, there have to be eviction impact assessments. Uh, there has to be a right of people uh, who are living in dangerous conditions to resettle. And there has to be uh, adequate uh, compensation. And uh, the guidelines also, and this is, I think, for the first time in the UN that we have guidelines that, um, that, uh, that say that states um, the states are asked to take specific preventative measures to avoid, and I'm reading directly, avoid and or eliminate underlying causes of forced evictions, such as speculation in land and real estate. States should review the operation and regulation of the housing and tenancy markets, and when necessary, intervene to ensure that market forces do not increase the vulnerability of low-income and other marginalized groups to forced evictions. And I think you can probably identify with this very much here in, in Vancouver. And the guidelines go on in, in great detail to talk about other uh, safeguards that are necessary, other preventative measures that, uh, that have to be uh, taken. The other um, recommendations that came out uh, of the mandate, which um, can be helpful, uh, is that, uh, and, and it leads from what I was saying earlier about the lack of an assessment of the scale of the problem, uh, was how, how do you actually make a better assessment and what would that, uh, what would that achieve? And what would that achieve, particularly in, in, in terms of holding the state accountable for, um, um, for the policies and, and for lack of policies and uh, legislations? Uh, and, and how an accurate assessment uh, would actually uh, allow us to counter uh, government uh, propaganda that is there around the world that actually neoliberal policies work for the poor. There's this belief uh, without any evidence that rising tide lifts all boats, that there's a trickle-down effect uh, and all of that. So, so the, 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 there were a number of recommendations on, on carrying out assessments and, and what that would achieve. 
The other idea which uh, appealed uh, to me very much and which I've mentioned uh, in many different parts of the world actually comes from Canada. It's the idea of the housing continuum, that in any city you have to have a gradation of options uh, for housing. You, you cannot only have shelters, uh, a little bit of rental, and then mostly you know, home ownership. You have to have uh, you have to have supportive housing, you have to have uh, hostels where necessary, you have to have different forms of rental housing, cooperative housing, and so on. And, and, and unless you do this, you're not actually following uh, a, a rights approach. And uh, the, um, the other idea I wanted to share with you, and I think this is perhaps one of the most promising um, sort of Concepts and now you know being put into action that has come out of the work uh, on 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 housing and other areas is the whole concept of the right to the city. Uh, essentially, the the idea is very simple. It is that everyone who contributes uh, through their work uh, to a city, uh, a city's economy, a city's you know culture, social life, has the right to everything that city has to offer. I mean that that's essentially in a few words, uh, the concept. But, but the, the work that has been done in the recent years on um, interpreting the right to the city from a sort of overall human rights perspective um, is that we have to go beyond um, just the recognition of the right to the city uh, that you know, guarantees that, to guarantee that all human rights to all those living and seeking to live in city spaces uh, with a special focus on marginalized and uh, vulnerable groups, and that the right to the city needs to encompass the ideals of an alternative, adequate, and ideal city, that it should encompass the principles of the indivisibility of rights, that the rights should be, um, there should be uh, guaranteed uh, to all women and men, youth and children who, irrespective of their economic status or identity, class, caste, um, and that there was a need for inclusive models of uh, mixed-use uh, city planning and development. The priority has to be given to vulnerable and marginalized groups. And there's a very good example of this uh, in the form of a national legislation uh, called the Right to the City legislation in Brazil, which uh, is a legislation which actually calls on municipalities to designate uh, what, the, what the law says are zones of social interest, so areas where vulnerable people live would be uh, given special recognition. Uh, the people there living there, the communities would be given security of tenure and provided with uh, civic services. Um, so, so the right to the city has actually received um, that type of legal recognition, at least in one country. The right to the city also includes um, the need for uh, gendered cities and gender equality, um, the need for participation of everyone in, in the type of development that takes place. And very importantly, uh, something that's a uh, little bit um, complex, uh, the terminology, but uh, it would also include the right to non-retrogression, which essentially means that any advance that has been made uh, in a city in terms of provision of social housing, in terms of you know, protection of uh, tenants, uh, cannot be clawed back. So you, you cannot retreat from that. And if you do, um, then it would... Um, it would be a, a, a violation of, uh, of uh, the um, obligations that the city has. So in a sense, the, um, the right to the city um, calls for 
the implementation of international human rights commitments. It calls for the harmonization of local and national laws with international standards. It calls for human rights-based reform of city policies and um, its development paradigm. Uh, and it calls for implementation of regulatory measures, what I was saying before, to check the unfettered um, growth of the market. So essentially, the right to the city as a concept um, encompassing a range of a bundle of human rights can become, and this is being picked up by movements around the world, uh, very actively uh, the work has gone on in Latin America, but it's also now being picked up in Africa and Asia. Um, so the, the, the concept can become a powerful organizing principle for mobilization and, and, adequate, uh, and ad advocacy. Um, so the idea of the right to the city, um, and um, I think Margot has summarized the recommendations that I, I wanted to actually end with this uh, recommendations I made in my uh, mission report to Canada, uh, but let me just spend a few minutes on that. Uh, the overarching recommendation was that Canada has to adopt a comprehensive and coordinated national housing strategy um, based on the recognition of the right to housing, that it has to uh, give full rec legal recognition to the right to adequate housing. Um, when I made my assessment, I, I couldn't think of another solution but that Canada has to embark on a large-scale program of building social housing um, as it was doing uh, in the uh, 70s and 80s. Uh, and uh, and that there has to be um, you know a range of sort of measures taken um, you know measurable goals and timetables uh, for the achievement of uh, housing for the most vulnerable and and there was a need I found a framework for of tenant protection law uh, was was largely missing and of course very important the development of a targeted Aboriginal housing strategy. Um, and uh, um, so, you know, my conclusions, which actually Margot summarized, where was that uh, there was a serious crisis of homelessness and inadequate housing in in Canada, and uh, it was really surprising for me to see that in such a wealthy country there there are such levels of, you know, inadequacy in housing, homelessness, um, and a range of other uh, other problems. So finally, I, I think that. Um, I, um, I, I wanted to speak a little bit more, but perhaps this can come up in discussion. Um, I, I feel that the obstacles that we face are tremendous around the world, um, and we need to uh, take all measures. We need to use the UN system at, as, as it is there. We need to go out on the street uh, if possible. We need to have, there, there has to be much more um, mobilization on the issue of, uh, issue of housing. And I wanted to end by... Um, actually um, reciting a small poem from Sudhir, um, from uh, Sahir Ludhianvi, who's a very famous uh, historically and Urdu poet um, from my part of the world, from the Indian subcontinent. And this might sound a bit, um, you know, very sort of um, perhaps too strong for you, but uh, from in many parts of the world um, it carries a deep resonance. And I, I quote, if we fail to speak up today, deadly silence we will earn. Every home will be on fire, every dwelling will see burn. From beyond the silence then, a cry of anguish will return. There's no one here, no one at all, no one. So I think we all need to work in our own spaces, 
across countries and um, internationally to try to bring the right to adequate housing to a reality for vulnerable people who are all around us. Thank you very much. track from Language Arts and off their new release, Wonderkind. I'm Eddie Longhurst, and this is the City and Hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. And uh, on the hour, you've been hearing from uh, Miloun Kothari, and he is a former UN special rapporteur on the right to adequate housing. And that was from a talk he gave um, on J- uh, July 9th, 2012 at SFU Woodwards. And I want to, again, thank um, the SFU um, Van City Office of Community Engagement for permission to broadcast uh, that recorded talk. And if you missed any uh, part of that, you can certainly check that out at thecityfm.org. And uh, we're here on 101.9 FM CITR and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. 
And uh, again, as I mentioned, uh, you can check out the podcast of this show as a, as a podcast and also of past shows uh, at thecityfm.org. And you can catch The City Live here on CATR Tuesdays at 5 p.m. and syndicated on CJSF Fridays at 10 a.m. And be sure to follow The City on Twitter with the handle thecity underscore fm and on Facebook by searching The City Critical Urban Discussions. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, we'll be back next week with more critical urban discussions. Enjoy that sunshine out there. Take care.